You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Maria Elena Batazzi, a highly accomplished vaccinologist and global health advocate for neglected tropical diseases. Dr. Batazzi is the Senior Associate Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Professor of Pediatrics, Molecular Virology, and Microbiology, Division Chief of Pediatric Tropical Medicine, and Co-Director of Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and Distinguished Professor in Biology at Baylor University in Waco. Dr. Patazzi is an internationally recognized tropical and emerging disease vaccinologist, global health advocate, and co-creator of a patent-free open science COVID vaccine technology that led to the development of Corbivax in India and HALA-certified Indiovac in Indonesia, both COVID-19 vaccines suitable for global access. She pioneers and leads the advancement of a robust infectious and tropical disease vaccine portfolio tackling diseases such as coronavirus, hookworm, and Chagas that affect disproportionately the world's poorest populations. She has also established innovative partnerships in Latin America, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, making significant contributions to innovative educational and research programs. Dr. Batazzi is a member of the National Academy of Science of Honduras and former emerging leader and health and medicine scholar of the U.S. National Academy of Medicine. As a global thought leader, she has published more than 230 scientific papers and participated in more than 250 conferences worldwide. Welcome, Dr. Batazzi. I'm really excited to have you on the air. Oh, thank you. It's just a pleasure to be with you and have this great conversation today. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here. And I really want to learn more about your personal background. You just have such an amazing professional journey. Tell me a little bit about what first sparked your interest in infectious disease research and vaccine development. Well, it's a little bit simple, but uh, maybe not that simple. As you know, I grew up in Honduras which is a Central American country that unfortunately is plagued by many of these infectious tropical, you know, emerging pathogens and, you know, you, you name it, right? You find anything and everything. So since I was very little, I was not only exposed to them just by seeing, you know, how it impacts the population, certainly the poorest populations in Honduras, but also because I was always very interested in the, you know, in the biological sciences in school. I loved math and science and biology and chemistry more than history and social <laughs> studies, right? Um, so, um, so when I graduated from high school, you know, my first inkling was, you know, I want to study something in in the medical um, sciences, and ended up in microbiology, which surprisingly. I thought it was like the perfect uh, degree for me because it really brings not only the study of the pathogens, how they interact with the host, whether they're humans or even animal hosts or even the environment. But then importantly is how do you develop um, interventions to prevent them, cure them, or even detect them. 
because that's what we microbiologists do, right? We, we create tools for the physicians, for the nurses, for the healthcare provider, how to better ha- manage these uh, diseases. And that's how I ended up really getting involved, not only in vaccine development, but, um, you know, associated, you know, kind of uh, technologies, right? You know, how do you better, how to better understand how we can um, control these diseases when they afflict uh, uh, the populations around the world. So, Dr. Batazzi, you talked about experiences that kind of influence you along the way. What about people that maybe influence you along your professional journey? Well, people are very important, right? Because not only we we work with people around us, but we um, also uh, serve to uh, help the people around the world. So, my, I think my um, uh, secret of uh, a little bit of success was indeed that that I was very intentional of who I surrounded myself with. Not only, of course, my professors in the school or even in the university. But but those who really guided me, on, you know, how you can strengthen your um, not only certainly scientific capabilities, but also those soft skills. Right. So understanding how do you better interact with each other? I think that's very important. I think, you know, when I speak to many, especially young not only women uh, uh, scientists or, or young girls or even just anyone that is striving to build a, a pathway of what they want to be when they grow up. It's not only, of course, study, you know, educate yourself, um, garner those skills so that you can really learn of who you are and, and, and how, what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are so that you can improve them, but rely a lot on, on that you know, network of um, advisors, mentors, supporters, whether it's your family, your friends, and of course, professional, that is very important. So I have many that throughout my years have influenced not only my decisions, but also helped me during the hard times, right? When you really are struggling, especially during your struggling times, it's more important to have people support you. Absolutely. Well, I want to turn to all the work you've done in vaccine development because you've been involved in the development of several different vaccines, including one for Chagas. Can you talk about the importance of developing vaccines for neglected tropical diseases? Sure. And I do want to then bring you back to not only, of course, when I was studying, which I learned about all these pathogens, right, including, you know, the pathogen that uh, causes Chagas disease. But back in the early uh, 2000s, like just when we, we were, you know, turning into this new century where global health was really um, converging because we saw that there were a lot of challenges around the world, including, again, how can we um, address many of these infectious and emerging diseases? We noticed that there were and, we, and I say we because, of course, it's not just myself, but, you know, my science partner, Dr. Peter Hotis, and certainly my team and the teams in our laboratories, we noticed that they were a group of diseases that that they were always forgotten, um, the so-called neglected diseases, not neglected because they don't have a lot of uh, people being affected. In fact, there's billions of people that are affected, but neglected because they they occur in this you know, pockets of, you know, 
of, of poverty in people, of course, that live in poverty. So there was not a lot of attention, certainly not a lot of attention by those who develop these pharmaceutical interventions, right? Not a lot of drive and incentives to commercialize a vaccine for Chagas, for example, when you know that, you know, only poor people need to use it. So we, we therefore decided to adopt those as our priority diseases to see whether we could, in fact, come up with a model of how would you develop vaccines that were intended to be used in indeed these poverty pockets around the world, which require therefore a, a, you know, a little bit of a out of the box thinking, right? So if you're not going to engage a big pharmaceutical company, who else can be brought to the table to collaborate with you during this um, process of bringing discoveries from the academia to the clinic to the society. And we realized that there could be many players, you know, not only players in the global north, where, of course, we may bring, you know, not only potential funding opportunities, but certainly, you know, some technology innovations, but to also bring and empower the 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 work together with institutions in the global south and empower them to actually be them to develop these types of interventions and that's how we we created this uh, vaccine center our texas children's vaccine center at baylor where we strive by not only advancing vaccines for neglected diseases but we do it using this model of inclusivity and empowerment and building the capacity with the low middle income country partners. And I think that's a really unique model. I haven't heard of that type of model being used elsewhere. Have you? There, I mean, we're not the only ones, but we 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 think that we probably are among the f- a few of those who really use this model, right? It's a, it's certainly a, a nonprofit um model, uh but it's also a model that even though um, it, it is to advance these neglected diseases, do have to rely on uh, business practices and certainly quality practices, right? You know, because it doesn't matter whether it's a, a vaccine for poor people or a vaccine developing the nonprofit sector or the private sector, the methodology and the requirements are the same, right? You want them to be safe. You want them to be, of course, effective. You want them to be um, of the highest quality as possible and that you want them to be affordable and accessible, right? And so I think that is, um, uh, you know, a philosophy that it doesn't matter who does this development. So we needed to kind of build that ecosystem of development, even though the intent was to eventually morph them into public goods, right? Into goods that would support a lot of poor people, but that most likely will, would need to be subsidized. Uh, and who do, who does this? Most likely a combination of uh, stakeholders, right? Subsidized by government, subsidized by even um, some of these more um, uh, like uh, foundations or agencies that eventually um, uh, strive to get these products to the people who need them. I wanted to ask you about COVID-19 because the pandemic, it, you know, had a profound impact all around the world. And your work on the development of a COVID-9 vaccine was instrumental in the fight against the disease. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced during the process and how did you and your team overcome them? 
Very good question. So first, you may even ask, you know, how on earth a group that focuses on neglected diseases end up adopting, right, ended up adopting the coronavirus program. And in fact, you know, to be very honest, if you even look back, uh, uh, even from after the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s, again, and even pre-MERS, you know, unfortunately, when you have these types of diseases, which are they come and go. You don't really know when they would, they come, when the next outbreak is, you know, that's why they're of, you know, they're pandemic importance, but they're not, they're not necessarily living around us, you know, constantly. You can't predict. So sometimes the sustainability of the programs, not only funding wise, but also scientifically are this game of when there's money, you, 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 you pay attention to them. When there's an emergency, you pay attention to them. But in normal business as usual days, you know, tends to be very up and down, right? So we around 2010 saw that the coronaviruses, certainly SARS uh, vaccine development programs were not very um, high in priority of support. And as I mentioned, we tend to adopt those that are neglected. So we said, you know what, why don't we start learning about coronaviruses, um, evaluating the feasibility of developing um, a prototype vaccine, again, with this model that they would be done in partnership with the low middle income country settings. Um, we, in fact, were successful at getting a grant to design these prototypes. And the hope was that we would have these prototypes ready in the event we were to have a future outbreak. In fact, as we were developing our SARS vaccine, which you know we even went very advanced to produce it even under good manufacturing practices, then MERS popped up, we pivoted and we started designing MERS vaccines. So honestly, uh, we had 10 years of expertise uh, right pre-COVID, and when, of course, you know, uh, COVID arose, we were we scientifically were ready, right? We said, you know, we 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 can do this. We had, you know, we knew how to create prototypes. We already had the partners. We already had engaged, um, you know, how we would use this as this nonprofit model to try to be ready during an emergency. And, and for us, that was, you know, the easy part of thing. But then the challenge was, uh, the policies were not very flexible. Um, there was not a lot of priority for technologies that eventually would, uh, enable this concept of empowering the global south and therefore decolonizing the vaccine, COVID vaccine development process. Everybody was really focusing on these very new, shiny new toys, right? Wonderful technologies, um, RNA technology, viral vector technology, which of course they were instrumental, but not focused on global access, right? And we, that was our challenge is, is convincing and, and, and showing to the world that sometimes, you know, a simple conventional technology, something that you even have 10 years of evidence and decades of experience would, uh, should have been uh, developed in parallel with these other novel technologies. And so that was the struggle. And I think that's, um, even though we had those struggles, eventually we were able to, uh, go across those uh, challenges. 
and we managed to um, bring two two technologies. One co-developed with a partner in India, the second co-developed with a partner in Indonesia, to the point where uh, they were authorized in their countries, and we have now more than a hundred million vaccinations uh, against COVID nineteen. So that's amazing. That's pretty incredible, and. I wanted to ask you, are there any particular breakthrough moments or milestones when you look back at that period that really stand out to you? Well, I think the breakthrough was our um, really uh, thinking out of the box of the fact that we we had to continue working on these diseases, learning about what are these coronaviruses, how they interact between the the you know the ho- the host and the and the pathogen itself how we could create the system in our laboratories, how could we have the documentation ready that would enable that transition into a regulatory pathway. So I think the breakthrough was not drop the ball, right? You know, keep it alive. So that was very important. And then I think the second breakthrough is indeed that showing now, now we actually really have shown that our model of decolonizing the process where it's not only required to have a big multinational for-profit company be the one driving the process to the um, last mile, but that that last mile can also be accomplished by empowering local developing country vaccine manufacturers um, that they themselves are in some level um, multinationals themselves, but that they've always been categorized as not first-rate innovators, but categorized more as follow-on producers where they just um, follow other big multinationals and they don't innovate internally. I think that was a major breakthrough. And I think the third breakthrough was um, you know, how we could impact millions of lives, right? And prevent certainly deaths and prevent severe disease by making this safe, effective, but at the same time, affordable and accessible vaccines locally, indigenously. Dr. Patazzi, you have built sustainable biotechnology capacity and have successfully transitioned several NTD vaccines from bench up to phase two clinical trials, which is really impressive. Can you tell us what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned throughout this process and how you've applied these lessons to your work going forward? Yes. And um, I always uh, say that I, my guiding principles and my, um, I guess my, my roadmap is, is created using various um, words that start with the letter C, right? So the lessons, the first lesson is of course, you have to have that creativity, right? You know, so the scientific creativity has to be there. And of course, we get that by, you know, being academics and by certainly understanding, again, the scientific uh, backbone of, you know, the pathogens and the relationship with the host. But science may, sometimes is not sufficient, right? So the second C is that you have to have that courage, right? Again, to... um foresee where the challenges would be, not only scientific, but again, you know, operational and, you know, uh, financial and, um, uh, you know, certainly partnership, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, collaborations and partnerships. So once you have that curiosity and courage, 
as I said, we predicate or I predicate also in the fact that you have to do this collaboratively, right? So the, the, the third C is collaboration. And within that collaboration, you have to be very intentional of who your collaborators are and they have to be trusted. They have to, of course, also be, have accountability. Um, and, and, and you forge, you know, uh, a nice community, right? So that's the third component, right? So not only you have to collaborate, but then you create that community of partners. But I think the 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 C that it's the most important to me is that you know as much courage, you know, as much creativity, as much collaboration and, and community you create, you have to be very cognizant, and you have to therefore use your cultural intelligence. Right. Because it's not the same way how you collaborate and and create uh, solutions uh, when your cultures are very different uh, and that you have to listen to what the needs are and who are the people that you really want to to um, to serve. So, example, right. You know, when we started working in Indonesia, um it, it was very important for us to understand their culture. You know, it's a Muslim majority country with an intent to serve Muslim majority populations. So how could we create a technology that eventually would be accepted by that population? And therefore, we strove to ensure that we could enable a pathway for, in our case, a halal certified vaccine which requires therefore to go back and be creative in how you do the science and be courageous in ensuring that you meet the requirements for these uh, activities. So as you can see, those are the kinds of lessons. And if we keep our guiding principles and certainly that combination of uh, science, but together with with these diplomacy aspects, right? Because it's all diplomacy, right? It's how you engage, how you communicate. Um, that allowed us to really then um, really advance the programs that we have in our portfolio and really do good for for the world, right? And Dr. Batasi, you just mentioned uh, collaboration as one of those C's, and you've worked extensively at the intersection between academia and industry. I'm curious, given all the collaborations you've worked on during your career, what are some of the key elements that make a successful tech transfer partnership between the two? Oh, wonderful question and certainly very appropriate for the podcast, right? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, and and I was very privileged to, you know, in fact, participate in your annual autumn conference this year. And and I I said it very clearly, right? You know, so for, for a scientist to be successful, it has to rely not only on science, right? So you have to rely on, um, the, people who will enable that science discovery to transition and be translated through all the different steps of the pharmaceutical development in our case. And for that one, you not only need to know certainly the ethics aspects, but the aspects of intellectual property, the aspects of technology transfer, right, of how you share your uh, not only intellectual knowledge, but your reagents and your information and eventually, of course, you know, build a whole, you know, through these collaborations. So that's the first thing that I usually say when you when you get to work in your environment that you're working, of course, you meet your peers that are aligned with your scientific, um, of course, you know, interests. But 
go outside of that, right? Learn who is your tech transfer officer. Um, build a relationship with the, your general counsel. Build a relationship with those who, of course, manage your compliances, right? Because they're the ones who can really help you not only find the ideal partnerships for you to then move your uh, scientific discoveries, but really go along with you to create the best path for it, right? And so I've had the amazing opportunity of in my 22 years and certainly my 12 years in Houston with Baylor and Texas Children's to really forge a very close relationship with our Baylor licensing group, with, of course, our general counsel, because that's important, right? That's the only way that eventually we want to ensure that what we do in our labs ends not only in the good hands, but but ends in the good hands and enable those good hands that receive our knowledge and our you know information to convert it into something good for society. And so that for me it's very important. And and the reason why organizations like Autumn are key, right? Because they have to go on they're they're fellow travelers, right, with us. You support us, but we need to support you for all of us to be able to achieve what we want to do, which is get interesting, novel solutions that address many global challenges to fruition and to therefore uh, make this world a better world. Absolutely. And that brings me to ask you, you know, you've worked extensively to try and improve health outcomes in low and middle income countries. You've said that several times so far during the podcast. And I wanted to know, you know, obviously to be able to do that, um, Public-private partnerships are are really important. Can you talk about how important those are, particularly when it comes to advancing global health initiatives? Well, I think they are essential, right? I mean, it's very rare nowadays that you can do anything without doing it with um, partners. Um, and, And that's key, right? And whether they're partners, you know, uh, among the public sector or between public and private or whether they're, you know, between for-profit and non-profit, it doesn't really matter, right? Or whether you bring academia with the pharmaceutical sector, you know, however that, that concept of partnership looks like, it's essential that we do things in partnership, right? It's very rare nowadays that a single, not only certainly individual, but a single institution can really walk along um, the very com- big and huge complexities that we have, not only to address the challenges that we have in the world, but even just, um, you know, our our human nature, right? I mean, we humans love to, to work with, with other humans, and therefore I think it's essential. So that, again, goes back to um, the intentionality of, uh, you know, that, it's not very simple to create those partnerships. So you have to be very intentional of how you build them, but also setting very specific uh, guiding principles and um, that that really you understand of the role of each partner, um, that they also, of course, are accountable for accomplishing those roles. And, and more importantly, it's an opportunity of actually uh, diversifying the skills that you need, right? So you, you as an, as an individual or even you as a group of uh, um, scientists in our case, we cannot do everything, right? We cannot, you know, we have to 
rely on others who also bring expertise in other disciplines. And that's why now it, it is so amazing to, to work certainly in, in this space of global health because you not only um, focus on the science, but you learn about the economics behind it, you know, the engineering that you need, the, of course, the law, um, the ethics, um, you know, there's so many disciplines now that you need. And the only way to do that is through this uh, partnership approach. So, Dr. Batazzi, I wanted to ask you, what are your hopes for the future of global health and vaccine development? Well, my hopes are that even though we we say that, you know, we uh, that we want to work in partnerships, right, that we should all um, be collegial and, you know, and, and, you know, and of course, try to be nice to each other. Uh, that we all talk about how we want to strive for an equitable global health and, and achieve uh, equity at all levels, right? You know, gender equity, you know, um, certainly uh, science equity, um, uh, even uh, um, economic equity, right? Um, of all sorts of equity that that it, we we just talk, talk, talk about it and not and you don't see actually many actually doing it. And I think, you know, for us having uh, used certainly, you know, our vaccine programs in NTDs, but especially the achievements we had with our COVID-19 vaccines and their deployment and, and their ability to, to really reach the last mile, which are the people who needed it, it's probably um, a good example of how you really can um, not only talk about uh, being collaborative and achieving equity, but actually an example that we we did it. And I hope, therefore, that our story can be um, studied and can be replicated and can be reproduced, and that many others um, do the same thing that we did, right? You know, and and if we all achieve in our little stories. Um, uh, you know, uh, doing and, and actually uh, achieving, you know, not only what we say, but actually doing it, I think we would all eventually uh, uh, live in a much more prosperous and peaceful world. I completely agree with that. And, you know, that's a great segue to my next question, because I wanted to ask you as a Latina scientist, how do you think diversity and representation in the scientific community can contribute to the advancement of science and innovation? Well, again, you know, uh, you're right. I mean, your roots, uh, your story of where you come from, your family history, your culture, again, your cultural intelligence, it's essential, right? You know, I, as a Latino woman, the fact that I grew up in Honduras, that I was exposed to an experience most likely very different to the experience of a, uh, someone else, right? We all, you know, even even within our own culture, we all have different experiences. But that allows us to bring uh, a uniqueness, right? Uh, a perspective. Uh, each of us think differently. Each of us um, struggled, you know, in different ways, but also achieved goals in many different ways. So I think that that's the value of diversity. That's the value of being, again, equitable and um, being diverse. Um, you know, it's it, it's the way to go. There is really no alternative, to be very honest. So I think that not only we have to 
talk about uh, diversity, um, equity, inclusion, and even justice, we actually have to start doing it. Um, and the only way to do that is, of course, by telling our stories and by encouraging the young generations um, and the young generations of these multi-diverse, you know, um, people that we are, you know, the human race is so multi-diverse, is is that we take advantage and we should listen and therefore we should um, tell our stories. And what do you think organizations and institutions could do to better support and promote diversity and inclusion in the scientific community? Again, I think many, all you know, now you can see in all the websites and in all the different organizations, all that, yes, they support the whole DEI, right? Or even the, now we call it in, in our institution, we even call it the JEDI, right? Justice, uh, uh, equity, diversity and inclusion, JEDI. Uh, but but sometimes it's hard to really see how that they're actually, how they're doing it, right? And again, it's, it's, it's not only... Uh, uh, walking the walk, but is actually doing it right. Um, and and the way to do that is to encourage it, to set an example, to to ensure that is within the culture of our organizations. But then uh, give us time to actually talk about it um, and to come up with ways of how we can show that we're doing it. Um, so there, so I think that we need, in, of course, in academia, there's many ways, um, especially with the recruitment, you know, with the diversity of our students, uh, with, you know, the faculty, with the programs that we, of course, you know, um, uh, you know, educate or, or do in our laboratories. But I have to say that associations, especially associations like, you know, like Autumn, right, which represent a cadre of, uh, of um, uh, industry, right, and people um, should be the ones also setting an example. And I heard a lot of op options and opportunities, and we can even see it now with how you selected your next uh, leader, right, uh, and how you diversify even within the board, right, and how do you bring uh, different institutions to be part of your membership and and even going not only within the United States, but the fact that you now are, are aspiring to make the organization truly global, right? So uh, it, it it takes a lot of time, but it takes, and it takes a lot of effort, but I think it's just uh, with, you know, starting with small stories and small achievements that on aggregate, it will, you know, be very important. Well, Dr. Bertazzi, thank you so much for the critical work that you're doing and for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's just a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars 
as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.